from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 3rd. Today, how President Trump spent his summer, the unexpected complications of life after prison, and how hurricanes are changing. The summer before an election year is usually a crucial time for the commander-in-chief. It's a quiet period uh, where the opposing party is in the midst of their primary battles. Congress is away for their extended recess, and it's a chance for a president to maybe uh, do some moves to lock down a key swing state. That's White House Bureau Chief Phil Rucker, and he points out that Donald Trump isn't like most presidents. He was not strategic in using this time in trying to build for re-election and trying to broaden uh, his appeal. Instead, it seems like everything he did this summer hardened uh, people's views about him and made him a more polarizing figure. We started our look at his summer on July 4th. Today we come together as one nation with this very special salute to America. You might say salute to Donald Trump uh, on the National Mall. And that was a high point for Trump. It turned out to be the pinnacle of the season because after that, uh, he started those racist attacks on the four congresswomen of color, the squad. Omar blamed the United States for the crisis in Venezuela. I mean, think of that one. And she looks down with contempt on the hardworking Americans saying that Ignorance is pervasive in many parts of this country. From there, you know, you had the attacks on the city of Baltimore and Congressman Elijah Cummings. It's a corrupt city. There's no question about it. All you have to do is look at the facts. And then there were the shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, that first weekend of of August. So many people killed. I get on Air Force One where they do have a lot of televisions. I turn on the television. And then they are saying, well, I don't know if it was appropriate for the president to be there, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the same old line. And the El Paso shooter left the statement online, according to authorities, that borrowed so heavily from the president's own anti-immigration rhetoric about a Hispanic invasion that by the time the president went to El Paso to visit the community there, he was being personally blamed by leaders for stoking this violence, for inspiring this mass shooter and his rhetoric being responsible for so many lives lost. And you had a series of events culminating last week with his very difficult trip to France for the Group of Seven Summit, where it was just whipsaw diplomacy. He was changing his mind at every turn and and leaving the allies really uncertain about American leadership. And so if there was going to be this change in the president's image that he is a get-things-done kind of leader, that did not happen this summer, that, that for a lot of people, his actions over the course of the summer confirm this image of him as racist, as intolerant, as ineffective. Yeah, certainly the people who believed that going in, this hardened those views. But I think also people who supported Trump may have come away from the summer supporting him just as well, if not more. It's worth pointing out, Martine, that the White House uh, gave us a list of what they called historic achievements for President Trump this summer. There were more than two dozen items on the list. Uh, you know, this White House spokesman, Judd Deere, said it was a historic moment for the presidency. Just to give you a flavor of what these achievements are, one was the meeting that Trump had with Kim Jong-un at the DMZ, the border between North Korea and South Korea. 
that was a photo op, a meeting, an important act of diplomacy, I guess, but it hasn't done anything to reverse the trends in North Korea. In fact, North Korea continues to launch these short-range missiles and, and has really frightened the Japanese and South Koreans with their aggression. And what are some of the other things that the White House pointed to as some of the president's achievements from these past couple of months? Yeah, so there's a long list here, and some of these things are not actually, have not been achieved yet. For example, the White House said that the president announced a new trade deal with Japan to give farmers more access to export their products. Well, the trade deal has not been executed. It's not been signed. There are a number of other things. The state banquet that President Trump had with Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth during his visit to the United Kingdom, uh, honoring fallen heroes on the 75th anniversary of D-Day in France. Those are important events, but they're not sort of tangible achievements or accomplishments that would necessarily secure somebody re-election. And were there other things that were helpful to President Trump this summer? Uh, Absolutely. Look at special counsel Robert Mueller's testimony July 24th in the House. There was a lot of expectation among congressional Democrats that Mueller would make the case for impeachment, that he would bring new evidence to the table, that he would help generate momentum on Capitol Hill to begin impeachment proceedings against the president. That did not pan out. Mueller gave a very lackluster performance that was criticized. He did not provide fresh evidence. He really stuck to the parameters of the report, the details in the report. And to Trump, that was a a political victory. And for the rank and file staffers that you talked to within the White House and within the administration, what did they say about what it's like to have experienced this summer? You know, they're tired and exhausted. And one Republican strategist who works very closely with people at the White House described the sentiment as, wake me when it's over. Just Mm -hmm. let's get through the summer. Trump, of course, is is not one to follow a script or a playbook or or be very disciplined. And and the staff were really on this herky-jerky roller coaster all summer long. I should point out, by the way, that that the White House spokesman says, well, nobody around here is tired. We're, you know, very busy getting work done for the American people. So there is a defense of that attitude as well. I also think that that some of these dominant narratives that came out of the summer, specifically the the racist tweets about the squad, mm-hmm. that those are the kinds of things that galvanize President Trump's base. Absolutely. And, you know, when Trump was continuing these attacks on the squad, his advisors were saying, look, there's a strategy here. This is a politically tactical move for President Trump. It's a way to motivate and galvanize his white supporters. Uh, remember, there, there are certain states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania where Trump won narrowly in 2016 and hopes to win again in 2020. And the key for him to win some of those states, according to his advisors, is to turn out every single sort of Trump-inclined white voter that you can find in the hinterlands. And the way to message to them and to appeal to them, according to the calculation the Trump campaign is making, is with some of these racist charges. So that even if this summer, if if it's held up against the standard of other presidents in their summers before, before an election year, even if it doesn't seem like it was a high-achieving summer, that for him and what President Trump is trying to do and the, the path that he sees towards re-election, in some ways, might have been a very effective summer. That's right. I mean, he he certainly thinks it was an effective summer. I happen to think it was a summer that tells us a lot about what the next year is going to be like and that there's not a grand plan here. There's not really much of a legislative agenda. Uh, there aren't that many concrete, tangible things that are getting a- accomplished. It's sort of churning from crisis to crisis to crisis and feud to feud to feud. And, and Trump likes that. 
frankly, that's how he won in 2016 is he he drove the news cycle every single day and he stoked grievances and he pitted people against each other and it worked to his benefit. And there's a calculation that he could do that again. But it's not what you would traditionally call governing. But when it comes to actual legislative action and and passing bills with Congress, do you expect to see that starting this fall? Not much. Uh, And part of that's just because of the partisan divide in Congress right now. You know, one area where Democrats are really eager to act is on gun control. After these mass shootings, we just had another one over the weekend in Odessa, Texas. There's real pressure uh, on the Democratic side to expand background checks, to to even perhaps ban assault, assault weapons. And the president has totally backed down from that. He's been pressured by the National Rifle Association, and he's bowed to that pressure. So he is unlikely to act on guns. The one area where we might see some legislative movement is on trade, that the USMCA, this is the new trade deal replacing NAFTA between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. There's a push now in the administration to bring that forward uh, in the Congress over this fall, and there could possibly be some momentum there. Bill Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. Why did you want to write this story? So there's so much national attention now focused on criminal justice reform. I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system. We have a nation that has more African-Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves in 1850. And most high profile, of course, is the First Step Act that President Trump signed. Unfair sentencing rules were contributing to the cycle of poverty and crime like really nothing else. Right now, the political conversation is so focused on sentencing reform and getting people out of prison. Tracy Jan writes about race and the economy for The Post. And she's watched as even people like Kim Kardashian have successfully advocated to commute prison sentences. I mean, it's like the sexy Kardashian thing to do is we're getting this person out of prison and that person out of prison. I pled the case of Alice Johnson, who the president granted clemency to. And, you know, the president is highlighting you on national television for those efforts. When I saw Alice's beautiful family greet her at the prison gates, hugging and kissing and crying and laughing, I knew I did something right. But we, we have so much focus on all the front end stuff. And what happens to people on the back end? What happens when they get out? The thing I'm focusing on now is occupational licenses. People with felony convictions are hampered in a lot of states. You are barred from being a bunch of different careers that have living wage jobs. Because of the frequent use, I have to try to pay like two or three times a week. So Mikla Lincoln is 46 years old. He grew up in South Providence in a low-income neighborhood with high crime rate. When I met Miko, he'd been out for six months. 12.30, 2.30, I freshen up to the bathrooms. 
And then tonight we do a thorough clean night. He's bounced in and out of Rhode Island prisons for his entire adult life. I started smoking crack cocaine at a really young age. And uh, from that, you know, that use progressed and I found myself getting into trouble, you know, doing things like selling drugs and taking people's money for drugs and not returning their money. He stayed clean the last three years. And this time around, he came out with a new a new goal, a new sense of understanding of himself and his purpose in this world. I started learning about, you know, that, it, that there is treatment for it. And that's something that um, intrigued me, you know. Um, so therefore, I started learning more about this. Uh, in prison, they do give you some elementary teachings regarding uh, substance abuse disorder. You know, they try to give you some coping skills. So when I was released from there, I, I ended up uh, writing a letter to the Amos House. Amos House is a social service agency in Rhode Island. It has housing for people who've recently been released from prison. They also do job training. And luckily for him, um, the director of the Amos House, Eileen Hayes, you know, really saw a change in him. She said he's always been very honest about his struggles. And she gave him the opportunity to not only have a job, she hired him as an $11 an hour custodian at the Amos House, but to also have the opportunity to train for a career. It's a it's called peer recovery counselor. So CPRS is a certified peer recovery specialist. Um, that's not a licensureship. It's simply uh, a certification. It's relatively new because people are beginning to recognize the therapeutic value of one addict helping another or someone with a lived experience helping another person navigate those same type of issues. So he could be a peer recovery coach. This is an entry-level job that people who have criminal backgrounds could get. But that's not enough to, you know, make a living wage on. And what he wants to do is be a licensed chemical dependency professional. That's the official term for it. Another word for licensed drug and alcohol counselor. Earning potential is a lot higher. The quality of life is a lot higher. Your your ability to help people is, is, I believe, is much greater. You know, because as a licensed professional, not only are you certified by the state, but you also have the um, credentials to be able to teach others, you know, and, you know, I have a family to support, and if I get a licensureship, it definitely will be able to help me help them. And you'd be earning more, so you can help. Earning more so I can help them, absolutely. This is someone who is very focused and has a purpose, but there are barriers standing in his way, and there are barriers standing in the way of many people who have a criminal record, especially a felony record. It's not a guaranteed path that he'll be able to follow. Even if I go to school and get the schooling that I need to obtain the licensureship, I'm going to be prohibited from actually gaining that license and going down that field. So, you know, that is really, really kind of like a scary thing for me, you know. So Miko's at a crossroads right now, and there's a growing need for these positions because of the opioid epidemic in Rhode Island and across the country. You know, hospitals are hiring halfway houses. Other shelters are hiring. You know, I'm not saying that I'm free from the disease of addiction because it's a disease that's going to be with me for the rest of my life. However, I've learned how to navigate life without the use of drugs and alcohol, and I can help another individual towards that. One could argue that what the licensing board could see as a flaw is actually something that would make him a better drug and alcohol counselor. But it's not clear that other people see it that way. That's right. 
So in Rhode Island, there are different rules and regulations. And one of the problems that Rhode Island illustrates that's happening in many, many states is that these rules are pretty uh, arbitrary and ambiguous. And so the power is really on the licensing board, and they can disqualify someone from licensing by with these good character clauses. That if someone is going up for for their licensing, the, the people who determine that, they could basically say, we're not going to accept this person and we don't have to give a, a solid reason why. Or we can say that Correct. it's because of lack of good character, even if that really means because this person has been in prison. Correct. Basically, advocates say that that's a way to disqualify people with any records from that license. So why is it that there are these barriers in place that prevent people who are released from prison from pursuing what could eventually be middle-class jobs? A lot of it is fear and stigma. Um, The official reason would be we want to protect consumer health and safety. But there's a lot of jobs across the country that you wouldn't even think there's licensing for. Like to be a florist in one state, you have to be licensed. Um, I mean, you could understand wanting to be a licensed daycare worker, for example, but some of these laws across the country, not just Rhode Island, um, have blanket bans on people with criminal records instead of looking at an individual and their history and seeing if their crime that they were convicted of relates at all to the job they're trying to have a license in. They just say no. What are some of the examples of other situations you've seen around the country where there are licensing barriers for people who are out of prison that don't always make sense to everybody? So a lot of these denials are actually done in obscurity because a lot of states don't either collect data or they don't make it public. But in Rhode Island, they had considered starting a certified nursing assistant job training program because there's a huge demand for CNAs um, in nursing homes and um, home care. But they ended up not being able to do it. The, The hospital, a local hospital, was willing to train people. They need workers. But because of the licensing barriers, they just didn't feel like that was the most productive path to go down right now. Or certain mechanical trades. In the Rhode Island prison, I met a current inmate who is in the middle of an HVAC program, and that's a growing field. And, you know, he's really good with his hands. He's He did, like, mechanic work on the outside. He's hoping that with HVAC, he can make a good wage. His instructor said you could make up to $100,000 in this field once you're licensed. But, however, this instructor has said that of the 250 guys he's trained in the last five years, he doesn't know of a single person who has been licensed once they are released. Not a single person went on to actually become an HVAC technician? He doesn't know for sure, if, but he doesn't know of anybody who did. And he does. he did check this with their union, and the union has said on a case-by-case basis— we will welcome someone for further training who has a criminal background, but again, it's a case-by-case basis. And it's not clear that that's actually happening. Correct. It feels like we're at this moment in the country where we are thinking more about the criminal justice system and the incarceration system, and that more and more people, Democrats and Republicans, are willing to rethink the way that we imprison people. So if this is the type of thing that people are more game to start reconsidering, why aren't we seeing 
new laws that also make it easier for people when they get out of prison. Yeah, it's just not as sexy to talk about reentry versus sentencing reform, right? But there are efforts. There are states, you know, more than a dozen states have already started tackling this occupational licensing issue. Okay, um, I'm here to provide some information about why this is so important. Um, In Rhode Island... There was a effort at the state house this spring to make it illegal to deny someone a license for a crime that's irrelevant to the jobs that they're trying to get. So these are all safeguards in place, both for the individual and for the agency, to make sure that they are making determinations that make sense under all the circumstances. No one formally opposed these laws. No one testified in opposition of this bill. But there was a lot of behind-the-scenes lobbying from a lot of different agencies that control these licenses. It passed one chamber. The Senate passed it unanimously. But the House introduced an amendment that would have taken out anyone who had a violent offense. And Which is a lot of people. Exactly. Most people in state prisons have had violent offenses. And violent offense could be like robbery, larceny, you know, stuff that Miko had actually been convicted of. He wouldn't have qualified. If this law had passed, he wouldn't have benefited from it. And so ultimately that bill died. And now the legislature is on break. And January 2020, they'll have another shot. So after the bill died, I contacted the House Speaker's office to ask him what was going on. Who were the people or the agencies objecting to this new regulation that would make it more difficult to deny people with criminal backgrounds, criminal records? And the speaker basically said that, you know, there are some state agencies that express concerns that he thought were valid and can't be disregarded. He said he intends to revisit this issue in January. Um, But the bottom line is you just can't, you know, you don't reduce our mass incarceration rate by just releasing people. You really do need to offer them a sustainable way back into society with sustainable wages. Otherwise, they're just going to reoffend. And there have been studies that have shown that states with higher licensing burdens have higher recidivism rates. And when there are these barriers to licensing for for people like Miko, and when you have these rules and regulations about what kinds of jobs that people who are formerly incarcerated can even qualify for, what message do you think that sends to those people? It's like you're a second-class citizen. You are not part of mainstream society. And this is something, this is like a cross you're going to bear for the rest of your life. So what are you going to do if you get rejected from earning your license? I'm going to continue to to advocate for myself. And, of course, you know, I would try to continue to find paths or career goals within the same realm that you know, there are no restrictions, but at the same time, to know that because of my past, which I already paid my debt to society, I still have these hidden prohibitions for me to put myself into mainstream society. It's kind of like disheartening. Keep on moving. Keep on moving. Don't stop. Keep on moving. And now, one more thing. At least five people so far have died after Hurricane Dorian made landfall in the Bahamas this weekend. 
basically you're in a washing machine with the, the water just swirling around and the winds raging, screeching, and uh, the water rising. It's just an incredible and terrifying uh, scenario that we've seen play out over the Bahamas. The entire double uh, hurricane window has come out of the wall near our laundry I'm Jason Salmonell. I'm the weather editor for The Washington Post, and I'm the chief meteorologist for the Capital Weather Gang. So when we think about Hurricane Dorian and what has happened with it so far, this is a historic hurricane. Over the weekend, its intensity grew to a strong Category 5 storm with peak winds of 185 miles per hour, which made it tied with the second strongest hurricane to ever form in the Atlantic Ocean, The storm, of course, has taken a devastating path through the Bahamas, the Northwest Bahamas in particular, basically slowing to a standstill right over Grand Bahama Island, where its peak winds at Category 5 intensity and Category 4 intensity as it weakened just a little bit stayed or hovered over the island for over 36 hours, which is just an unfathomable amount of time for a hurricane so strong to hit the same area. Every room in this house has the windows blown out, except for the one we stayed in right here. And when this roof started to leak and we saw furniture from upstairs come down, we knew we had to get out of here. We've seen images of people going up to their attic to try to escape the storm and the floodwaters pouring into the attic. That's how high the storm surge has been. Water, the coolers, everything floating. Which has been estimated to reach at least 18 to 23 feet above ground level. So that's a couple stories high. You can see the real depth, but the house is actually sealed really well. So y'all keep us in prayer in Freeport, Bahamas. What sets the storm apart from so many other hurricanes that we've seen in recent years is its slow forward speed. The fact that it remains stationary for so many hours over the same place at such a high intensity. There have been analyses which have shown that this is the slowest moving major hurricane category three or higher on record in the Atlantic Ocean. And what makes it worse is that it happened to be hitting land as it slowed down and then stalled. So this storm has become so strong and so devastating for a couple of different reasons. Of course, the environmental factors for storm intensification had to be just right. So the storm was sitting over very warm waters, which is, of course, fuel for hurricanes. There wasn't a lot of wind shear. When you have wind shear, that's a change in the wind direction and speed with height. It can tend to disrupt the storm, tear its thunderstorms apart. We didn't have much wind shear in the environment in which the storm intensified, which helped it get so strong. And not only that, I think what makes this storm a particularly bad disaster scenario over the Bahamas was the fact that the steering currents just collapsed. In other words, there was nothing to move this storm uh, once it got to where it stalled. And so Hurricane Dorian is an example of the type of storm we might expect to see with more frequency 
as we head into the future. And of course, just over the last several years, we've seen Category 5 hurricanes form in the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, over four straight years, we've had Category 5s, and there's no precedent for that as long as we've had quality observation of hurricanes from space. There is some preliminary evidence that storms are starting to intensify more rapidly because the oceans are warming. And computer model projections do indicate that as we head into the future, that we're more likely to see stronger, longer lasting, and more intense hurricanes. Jason Samanow covers weather and climate for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear the latest Post reports as soon as a new episode drops, you should subscribe to our daily email blast. Every afternoon, you get an automatic message with the headline and info on the stories featured that day. To subscribe, go to postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 